All right. Well, <laughs> I knew this day would come eventually. Uh, today in our New Testament challenge, we begin to work our way through the book of Revelation. Uh, and we come today to Revelation chapter 1. I hope you've already read it. And uh, and you know, if you've already ever spent any time in the book of Revelation, you know it's it's one of the most, if not the most difficult to interpret books of the Bible. And I must admit at the outset that I feel quite inadequate to the task of providing insight or answering many of the questions that have perennially been asked on a number of issues raised in the book. And um, I will certainly attempt to provide insights to the best of my ability, but will no doubt, I'll say this at the outset, leave unanswered many of the questions that some may have. I do look forward to the challenge, though, of reading through this book with you and thinking through many of the interpretive issues together. And there are as many interpretations of the book of Revelation as there are interpreters. And and um, I'll say this, that uh, every, every interpretation that recognizes the literal return of Jesus Christ and the necessity of personal faith in him has merit. <laughs> so uh, that being said, I look forward to learning as we move through this. I hope you do too. And in this first chapter, I want to lay out some of the assumptions that will guide my understanding of the book as a whole. Before laying out the assumptions, I do want to make, oh, and by the way, I just wanted to say, for those who may be interested, my views on Revelation, the book of Revelation, are most heavily influenced by William Hendrickson. And he has a, a book that's not too, it's not too uh, long. It was written in 1967 called More Than Conquerors an interpretation of the book of Revelation, more than conquerors. You could probably find it on Amazon for 10 to 15 bucks. might be worth your read. Um, but before laying out the assumptions, I do want to make sure we're clear on some basic information about the book. As you may know already, the, the author of the book of Revelation is John the Apostle. How do we know that? He, he himself declares it more than once in the very first chapter, verses 4 and 9. And that means John authored a total of five books in our New Testament. The Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and Revelation. We're told in Revelation 1-9 that the revelation was given to him while he was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Pat Patmos was an island about 40 miles off the coast of Asia Minor where many political enemies or threats um, political threats were exiled during the Roman Empire. And John says he, in verse 9, was exiled there on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. This was late in John's life, so probably around A.D. 95 or 96, uh, just at the tail end of the, of the first century. And John was an older man by this point, so he's writing this as a suffering Christian to suffering Christians to encourage them to persevere to the end. That's important to know. He is writing this as a suffering Christian to, per, to suffering Christians to encourage them to persevere to the end. So with those basic things now established, let's think about some of the assumptions that will guide and influence my understanding of the book as a whole. First, I don't believe that Revelation is a book entirely about the future. It seems to me that a common assumption about the book of Revelation is that it is totally a book about the future. It tells us what's going to happen, quote-unquote, in the end times. When we think about the book of Revelation that way, though, 
it tends to become more of a curiosity to us rather than a book that has immediate relevance to us. One of the most helpful interpretive keys in understanding Revelation is knowing that the book was first and foremost written for believers living in the first century with John. Think about that. What sense would it make for the revelation to be made to them in the midst of their suffering and have absolutely no immediate relevance to their lives? So the book is not merely about future events. It is mainly about uh, things that were relevant to them in the first century as well as to us in the 21st century. There's no question that future events are described in the book, but everything is not future. We're still waiting, for example, on the second coming of Christ, which Revelation describes to us in vivid detail. But just as vivid are the descriptions of what believers will suffer and what they must do in the meantime as we wait. Another big assumption uh, in, my, in my understanding of uh, Revelation is that it is not strictly chronological. It's not strictly chronological. In other words, um, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4 doesn't just proceed in chronological order. This is perhaps one of the more difficult assumptions to explain. Uh, it doesn't appear to me that Revelation was written in a strictly chronological fashion. When you read the book of Acts, for example, you start at the beginning and it reads in a strictly chronological fashion, i.e., this happened, then this happened, then this happened, etc. It doesn't appear that Revelation ought to be read in that way, surprise, surprise. Instead, it appears that the book is roughly divided up into seven sections. And if you have a pen, you can pause this and write these down. I'll just go ahead and tell you. It seems like it's divided up into seven sections. The first section is... Uh, chapters 1 through 3, the second section is chapters 4 through 7, the third is chapters 8 through 11, the fourth is chapters 12 through 14, the fifth is chapters 15 and 16, the sixth is chapters 17 through 19, and the seventh and final is chapters 20 through 22. Seven different sections. Here's, bear with me. And that these these seven sections roughly parallel each other in describing the same period of time. So on the whole, each section, each of those sections describe the period of time from Christ's first coming to his second coming. Each section covering that whole span of time uh, also emphasizes the spiritual struggle that embattle Christians during that time. Furthermore, each section seems to end with a vivid description of the final judgment as well as an offer of salvation. All right, so it's like each of those sections in some way is describing that whole period of time between the first coming and the second coming. And it, tell, it describes that, that same period of time over and over and over again, seven times. Now, to add one more layer of complexity to this, while each of those seven sections, generally speaking, refer to the same period of time over and over again, it also appears that as you read through the book, there is a steady intensification of the conflict in each one. So William Hendrickson, who I've already said uh, heavily influenced me, he says, the seven sections of the ap apocalypse are arranged in ascending, climactic order. There is a progress uh, in eschatological, that is, pertaining to the end times, emphasis. 
the final judgment is first announced and then it is introduced and finally described. Similarly, the new heavens and, and earth are described more fully in the final section than in those sections which precede it. To this conception of the book, we give the name progressive parallelism. <laughs> hey, I know that this may not be the easiest thing to wrap your mind fully around, but I encourage you to give it your best to think deeply about it. Remember that we were instructed back in 2 Timothy 2.15 to do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. It is worth thinking through these issues like this now at the outset so that as we work our way through the book, you will be more readily able uh, and be able to see the relevance uh, that the book has for you in your life now in the future. Okay, so I, that's one assumption also that I don't believe that the book was strictly chronological in, in order of time. Another assumption having to do with numbers and symbols that you're going to find in the book of Revelation. You don't have to get very far into the book to realize that it reads a little differently than any other book we've encountered in the New Testament. It is filled with symbols. For example, here in even chapter 1, verse 12, seven golden lampstands. And so that's symbols and numbers. Uh, um, seven, seven golden lampstands. Seven spirits in verse 4. Seven stars in verse 16. It makes very little sense, really, to attempt to read the book at, literally as you would the book of Acts or a gospel account or one of the many epistles in the New Testament. You won't get very far that way. The symbols are meant to represent something else, as are the numbers. Hear me on this. Almost all numbers, in my view, almost all numbers in Revelation are symbolic as well. As just one example of that rule of thumb here in this first chapter, consider again John's reference in verse 4 to the seven spirits. You could search Scripture from one end to the other and try to determine what seven literal spirits John may be referring to, but you would come up empty. It is much more likely and reasonable to be cognizant of the fact that the number seven is regularly used in, throughout the Bible as a number of completeness and perfectionness, why God rested on the seventh day in creation. Mindful of that, the seven spirits is a cryptic way of referring to the Holy Spirit which would make sense in the context because there is already a reference to God the Father in verse 4, Him who is and who was and who is to come, as well as a reference to God the, Fa God the Son in verse 5, Jesus Christ the faithful witness. So what you have here interpreted symbolically is a nice reference to the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We'll be, we will be more specific about the meaning of the various symbols and numbers as we move through the book and encounter them. Though it's good to be mindful of that general truth from the outset. Finally, the main point. I suppose it could be debated what the main point of the book is. But I believe a case can be made that the, the main point is that Jesus Christ and all who belong to him will overcome and conquer in the end. The Lord will be glorified and all who belong to him will share in that glory forever and ever. At present, this does not always appear to be likely. John totally understands this. Consider again two things we see juxtaposed in this very first chapter. In John, uh, excuse me, in verse six, John uh, says that Christ has quote made us a kingdom, priests to his 
God and Father. Now that that sounds rather blessed, and so it is. But from where John was writing those words, uh, it, it it would as he looked around, it seemed a little different uh, than a blessed place to be. He's writing from the island of exile called Patmos. He's writing. He's writing that word. He's made us a kingdom, priest to God, the God and Father. He's writing those words from a place of hardship and suffering. So while the, at present the picture may appear bleak, the revelation is always forward-looking to the reality that He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Verse seven. To those who know the Lord Jesus Christ. Suffering though we may be now, we can read those words of promise and say with John in verse 7, Even so, Amen. Those are just a few thoughts. I know they're deep and heavy, uh, but from this first chapter of John's Revelation.